This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. All right, so welcome to Astronomy Cast live from DragonCon. <laughs> So my name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of the Universe Today, and with me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. And so today, we've got a few victims here uh, that we're going to be sort of adding to the podcast. And the topic, if I let me just see if I got this right here, the tough questions of space science. And what I think this really should be is the tough questions from Fraser. So, so there's a bunch of questions that Pamela is often unwilling uh, to answer, uh, or she gives me this, 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 just this really quick answer, which is like, I don't know, we don't know, how could we know? And so we've got some fresh meat here tonight, and I thought we would do is we would ask some of these questions to some of the some of the other people. If Pamela wants to chime in, that would be great. So I thought I would sort of set the tone for the evening, but we'll go for about maybe 20 minutes, half an hour or so, with some of these questions. And then when I've run out, but I won't, uh, then I thought I would give you guys a chance to ask some questions. But here's the deal, here's the game. They've gotta be awful, just, just horrible, tough. And by horrible and awful, what he actually means is these must be the most difficult questions you can think of. The types of questions that, should we be able to answer them, might garner us Nobel Prizes, because he hates us that much. Yeah, no, it's Nobel Prizes for everybody. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th l-i-g-h-t dot com drop them a note eighth light software is their craft all right so i just want to just like start we'll start with an easy one here all right all right so less oh great okay (laughs) (laughs) star trek transporter okay is it a transportation device or a suicide booth both. I think it's really both. Explain your answer. Oh, yeah, yeah, the mic. Yeah, I think it's really both because the, the way I understand it from Star Trek lore is that it disassembles your the atoms in your body, right, and recreates them somewhere else. And, you know, disassembling the atoms in my body kind of sounds like killing me. Okay. So I've always assumed that it was some kind of uh, deconstruction of everyone, especially McCoy, and and reassembling them out of whatever's localized somewhere else. Uh, although it sometimes in the show, you know, it's not known for its consistency technically. I think they, they talk about rematerializing an empty space, which shoots my theory all to heck. So I, I don't know about that. Yeah, you you actually just framed that in a way that I haven't heard before. Because normally the assumption is you disassemble the person, you then transport those atoms somewhere else and reassemble them, which leads to a vacuum in one place. And too many atoms in the other place. And people finagle this with, well, maybe you're swapping the atoms between the locations. But if you're actually disassembling me here and just letting all of my bits and pieces sort of vaporize or do whatever, you remove the suddenly causing vacuum issues. I'm glad to be of help. (laughs) Disassemble. Disassemble. Does anyone else have an opinion that differs? No. No? You're all good with this? I have no idea what I'm talking about. Go ahead. We'll take it. Okay, good. All right, so Scott. Yes. How do you pronounce the seventh planet? (laughs) I was told that there would be no Uranus jokes here. (laughs) Is that your final answer? All right. (laughs) All right. Uranus. Uranus is the Greek pronunciation. All right. Um, all right. So, Aaron, you work on black holes? I work on black holes. You work on black holes? Yeah. You both work on black holes? Okay. All right. Well, Roy, you can have this one. Okay. So, so what does a black hole look like 
in, inside the event horizon. No, you, no, okay. you can't say we don't know. Okay, so it depends on the mass of the black hole, mm -hmm. um, because, well, the, the time when, in which you would be able to view inside the event horizon depends on the mass of the black hole. Assuming it's a supermassive black hole, it's got a really big event horizon, uh, what it looks like inside is that you would see whatever entered the event horizon before you, um, essentially as it looked um, after, uh, before it entered, and you would still see the event horizon before you, even though you were inside of it. Whoa, what? <laughs> so, so you're avoiding the question quite masterfully. I know this, because if it's me, he doesn't let me get away with that answer. So, so while I understand if you fly past the event horizon, you don't see any noticeable change at that point in time. But should you keep going, and see that blob or mass that is of sufficient density to trigger the event horizon to exist. What does that blob o event horizon causing mass look like? I can. Go, ahead. Go for it. I suppose because this was initially meant for me, but he's the black hole expert. Um, I would say that you that his answer was perfectly right, and the reason for that is because the light is falling in. And it's not reflecting back out because it doesn't, it can't. The gravity's too but, high. But is it a sort of like a physical size? Like, does it stop compressing at a certain point or does it just keep shrinking? I suppose if you're traveling into a black hole, you've got bigger things to worry about. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, effectively, it keeps going to a point right. in our reference frame. So it's probably infinitely small? Effectively, yeah. With, but can you, do you have a better answer for that? I just mean with our, our concept of space-time and our mm -hmm. reference frame, mm -hmm. if you think of us as falling over that event horizon into there, you're going to travel effectively forever till you're a point with all the other stuff that has become a point. <laughs> Well, I think we all know from the 1979 Disney movie, The Black Hole, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think was a documentary, that uh, it, it looks like you're entering the stained glass window of the cathedral. Yeah. Right. Okay. Unless I'll, you're I'll, evil, in which I'll case you go to hell. For sure. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Les. Oh, joy. Here we go. Um, <laughs> so, no, this, this one's easy. This okay. one's easy. This is right, right up your alley. Will all we right. ever build a space elevator? Will we ever build a space elevator? Uh, I don't believe we will because I don't believe we will practically want a space elevator. Really? And, and I'll be deemed a heretic from a large part of the space community for saying that. Uh, a space elevator goes all the way out to geosynchronous orbit, and that's tens, you know, tens of thousands of miles out, and it's at the equator. And that means that everything in Earth orbit is going to cross the plane that the space elevator is located in. Everything. And so every time a satellite or a piece of junk, and there are 500,000 pieces of junk in Earth orbit that are uh, the size of a pea or larger, or circle the Earth, they're going to have a chance of hitting the space elevator at orbital velocity. And I don't care what it's made out of, that's going to damage the space elevator, right? So if we're going to build a space elevator and have it be practical, we have to get rid of all the junk, and we have to stop flying all satellites in Earth orbit, because all of them will have a small chance every time they circle the planet of hitting a space elevator. So if we decide we want to get rid of all this stuff and we can clean up all the junk, then yes, we might build a space elevator. We could have other geosynchronous satellites. Yes, we could. That's it. But nothing in low Earth orbit. Nothing in low Earth orbit. So we'd be allowed weather satellites and we'd be allowed communication satellites and anything else we're bored enough to put in geosynchronous. That's right. That's exactly right. So pra practically speaking, even if all the miracles happen with the materials and the construction, it's a very practical problem of do you really want this thing? So assuming that you can have a space elevator, would it be faster than the elevators in the Hilton? <laughs> Probably yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's flip it. Because the most recent thing I heard is we're not looking at an Earth space elevator. We're looking at a lunar space elevator. I, that, that, I, I'm an advocate of space tethers and, and using long cables for, for moving things around in space. Um, I still wouldn't put an, an elevator on the moon. I'd use a rotating tether 
so that you can rapidly get things from the surface of the planet of the, of the moon out into space. So I think, yes, that might be more likely than one on the Earth, although I have a question about how you would anchor it and what the definition is of geostationary orbit at the moon and how you practically do that. So Yeah, so let's, can you explain a bit about what the tether is? Oh, sure, a tether. A tether is a long conducting cable or a long wire in space. We've flown several that are about 20 kilometers long. And, and there are ideas for being able to use these long cables that they really aren't that big. I mean, think of electrical wire. You could make them out of cabling about that size that could be slowly rotating in space and used to move payloads between orbits. Right. Uh, Scott, uh, how old are Saturn's rings? Depends on the week. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, you know. One week I might see an article that says, "Oh, they're quite young," and then uh, another week I might see an article that says they're quite old. And I think it's because you're looking at different aspects of the rings. Uh, there's the ma the massive rings themselves, which may be quite old, but then there's the all the collisions that happen within the rings, all the uh, meteorites that hit the rings, which make them look quite young. The short answer is really no one knows. Well, and, and there's also the difficulty that we know the rings are being um, restocked, I guess is the best way to put it, from the ice geysers. And, and so you have some particles that are ancient, some that are new, and so you have a continuum of ages across the particles. That was a great answer, Pamela, and that has earned you a question. Oh. <laughs> so, so, Pamela, when we look out into the universe and we see sort of the edge of the observable universe, 13.8 billion light years, but that's actually, you know, 47 billion light years away, is the universe finite? Like, is it, you know, a little bit bigger than that or much bigger than that, or is it infinite? It just goes on forever. And how could we know? So we can't actually get at the is it finite or infinite until we have better measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation. And if it is finite, we have already reduced it down to knowing that we live in only a few percent of the observable universe. And this is because when things emit light, they emit light in all directions. And so since space is curved, it's one of those unfortunate realities we deal with, um, light that's given off in all directions is basically going to, if you emit it out your eyes because you're wearing Star-Lord's helmet, it's, it's going to fly through space and hit you in the back of the head eventually. Well, when we look out at the cosmic microwave background, this means that some of the features we see on one side of the sky, we should also see on the other side of the sky if that there has been enough time and everything else and the universe is finite, then the light will wrap around. Now, the way the finite part comes in is, is you actually have to be able to go all the way around. And if it's infinite, there's no going all the way around because you, you just never get there from here. Now, as we keep looking more and more in detail at the cosmic microwave background, we have Planck data now, we're still just not finding any reflections. So that percentage of the universe that we take up keeps getting smaller and smaller if the universe is finite. And people who are hoping for an infinite universe keep rooting harder and harder and with greater enthusiasm. So you could see better instruments doing a better measurement of the cosmic microwave background and get to this point where uh, it's essentially infinite because the, the measurement is so precise that it just keeps expanding out the size of the, of the finite we, we start to run into resolution issues where, where you can't say the universe is finite just because we don't have enough resolution on, on the galaxy size even to say that. But we do get to the point where if we see the reflection, we can say, yes, yes, it is finite. But infinite is, is you just can't get there from here. It sort of sounds like Zeno. <laughs> He was confused. Uh, was he? Was he? <laughs> uh, Aaron, a uh, question for you. Uh, so what came first, the supermassive black holes that we find at the hearts of galaxies or the galaxies themselves? Ooh. Do you want to take no, this? go for it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he just physically moved away from me. <laughs> um, this is um, awesome. Yeah. 
I don't know, and that's not an acceptable answer for this podcast. So I would say that given my understanding in terms of the gravitational wave searches and the things that they're looking for, that that's one of the things they're trying to figure out is sort of how those black supermassive black holes grow and develop and where they might have started from because they might have started as solar mass black holes way way back in the day and then over time accumulated more and more mass and grew and then sort of became more of a center point in an old galaxy that then collided with another galaxy that then collided with another black hole in that galaxy and it just continued to get bigger and bigger and bigger um but there needs to be a lot more searches done to be able to say definitively where they came from because it is a chicken and the egg type thing. So so what could astronomers be looking for that could help kind of get to the bottom of that chicken or the egg scenario? Um, the rate of supermassive black hole collisions at different uh, distances. So um, how often they might have collided in a uh, further back in time. Uh, rates of collisions is always an interesting thing for astronomers to figure out the evolution of the universe. So that's that's the something that will give us a good indication of how often things happen and then if that starts to become a causal effect. Is that an okay answer? <laughs> that was a hard question. I, I, I'm going to elaborate on this. Um, so, so there's been some really fascinating research in the past year that shows that the answer is both. We, we used to think that galaxies formed either through the... Uh, Accretion is the fancy-smancy word we use. The reality is things smushing into each other where you take smaller galaxies and you build up into bigger and bigger galaxies. Now, the problem is the further back in time we look, which means we look at things further away and their light has been traveling longer to get to us, no matter how far back we look, we keep finding giant galaxies that shouldn't have had time to grow out of the accumulation of smaller systems. So it's now looking like some of the largest overdensities of mass after the Big Bang, the places that had the greatest pileup of material after the Big Bang occurred, these places are essentially being the nuclei of massive galaxies that formed in a, I'm just going to form out of the material right here and forget this whole accumulation of smaller bodies. And there's theories that show you can actually form the supermassive black holes using turbulent flow in these early models. There's all sorts of awesome stuff involved in this. It's ongoing research. We don't know if the turbulent flow model for building, building supermassive black holes is true or not. James Webb Space Telescope will get us closer to understanding if it's true or not. We do know there are giant galaxies in the early part of the universe that are best explained by saying these suckers just formed big. Now there are also the tiny galaxies forming in irregular structures that look like smushed dead bugs that do gravitationally bond with one another to build up into larger and larger systems. And we know that the size of a supermassive black hole is related to the size of the galaxy it's within. So as those baby galaxies merge together, you end up with mergers of the supermassive black holes to go from baby supermassive black holes to massive supermassive black holes. That was great. Uh, Les. <laughs> so Les, um, will we ever move faster than the speed of light? Ooh. <laughs> um, I, I'll give you, within what we know about how the universe works right now, no. Okay, it appears that the laws of nature are written such that it will prevent us from doing that. But I know better than to say something is impossible because our understanding of the universe is absolutely incomplete. There are lots of unanswered questions in physics. There are lots of really interesting experiments out there that are being performed that you have to scratch your head and say, well, what if? So I would be foolish to say it's going to be impossible and we'll never do it. But I will say we'll have to have a, an understanding of the way the universe works that's different than our current understanding before we'll be able to do that, which really stinks, by the way. Mm -hmm. Because I, I would love for us to be able to find that, that warp drive and just go. Um, but it looks like it's going to be a slow boat to another star right, right. now. Uh, Roy, how's your uh, general relativity? 
Okay. <laughs> so, so let's say we take a spaceship and we go really, really fast. And we take that spaceship so fast that its mass increases, if I understand my relatively correctly, right? So would that spaceship turn into a black hole if it goes fast enough? <laughs> and, and for background material on this, when he first asked me this, I said, I don't bleep and know. And broke to theoretical physicists. Let him answer. He's on the spot. Wow. Um. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. I think well, you know, I'll give everyone one of them. <laughs> yeah, we, we we actually did hammer this one out. I think. Did we get an answer on this one? No. No, we didn't. <laughs> the, the theoretical physicist that that was working the hardest on figuring this out one day came into my office and said he was retiring. <laughs> Yeah. If anyone has an answer, that'd be great. Um, I'm still waiting for that one. I'll put that on my future list. All right. Um, <laughs> that'll be next week's show. Um, all right. I got a. I got an easy one for uh, for Scott. So, so Scott, what's the best place other than Earth, obviously, to look for life in the solar system? Well. Uh, okay. So. Uh, scientists have been looking for life in what's called the habitable zone. Uh, and traditionally that's been uh, defined as the region where water could exist in liquid form. So if you're too close to the sun, you're in gaseous form. In too, if you're too far, you're, you're in ice. And so there's this magic zone that Earth just happens to be in. Mars just out of that zone. Venus just out. Um, but what we've been learning with Cassini and, uh, and even subsequent ob observations with Europa is that there's a lot of moons out there where there's enough tidal energy to heat the interiors of the moons and even though they have icy crusts, uh, they could have liquid, uh, a liquid region, oceans basically. And we think that Titan, Enceladus, Europa are good places to uh, look for this life, uh, and you know, you want to look for things that uh, you know. You want to look for molecules that might be there, that uh, that would be a key ingredient to life. And you need the energy source. Well, if you have enough tidal force, you have the energy to be there. So, so. pick one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, out of all the moons, you know, there's a lot of focus on Europa and Enceladus which uh, are good places to look for liquid water. Uh, and we do know that Enceladus has a lot of key molecules, but I think Titan is the place to go. Really? Yes. And Even I think you know, it's because we know that there's a liquid ocean underneath. Cassini has detected that. And uh, it has just the right combination of ingredients. It has a lot of nitrogen, a lot of methane from which hydrocarbons can be formed, and you have water there from which you could get oxygen. And you, if you combine things in the right way, uh, you know you might just get that amino acid that might be exist, you know, might form a protein, uh, etc. That's interesting. Um, yes. All right. Let me see. What else have I got here? Um, okay. So, so Les, have you ever have you heard of the Fermi paradox? I've lost a little sleep over it. Have yeah. You? Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So, so what do you think is the best explanation of the Fermi band? For those who aren't aware of the Fermi paradox, I have also lost a lot of sleep over this. And this is this idea that uh, if the universe is old and life, you know, we know here on Earth that life formed quite as quickly as it could possibly have formed, that there's nothing in the laws of physics that would stop aliens from essentially colonizing the entire galaxy within a couple of million years. So where are all the aliens? So what do you feel is the best explanation for why we see no evidence of aliens? The Unfortunately, the pessimist in me tends to believe that intelligent tool-using life is probably somehow self-limiting. 
in that we, we somehow managed to reach a point where we're either no longer interested in settling the stars and going out, you know, we all live in some virtual reality simulation and we just lose interest in that, or we destroy ourselves. Now that's the pessimist in me. I know you're gonna press me to one answer, but I have to give two to begin with. The optimist in me says we're the first. Okay, um, so you know it's, it's our universe to, to take or lose. Uh, but unfortunately, I think the pessimist in me is what causes me to lose sleep because there are so many things that could, could cause a collapse or could be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And we've avoided some of them already, just barely. I'm thinking nuclear war and, and what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. Um, so I, I, I tend to be a little bit pessimistic. I don't know what that lifetime of civilizations might be. I hope it's a good long time and we get a good long run. Okay, so, so you're talking about something that's known as the Great Filter. And so this is this idea that there's something that prevents all civilization from reaching to become a star-faring civilization. So, um, so Aaron, you had some ideas on maybe what this might be? Well, I heard an interesting theory that it's gamma ray bursts. That gamma ray bursts happen at pretty much the because the idea is if a gamma ray burst happens close enough to you and it's beamed to you, it can be quite catastrophic to that world. And they, you know, one of the mass extinctions of our uh, of Earth might have been from a gamma ray burst. And the idea is that they happen infrequently, but frequently enough that it prevents that it wipes out a civilization from becoming able to travel to other planets or stars, which is scary. <laughs> so there, there was actually what, to me at least, was uh, an idea I'd never thought of put forward in Calculating God by Robert Sawyer. And the idea is that every sufficient, it, it's just a theory related to God, that's just a different part of the story. Um, but the idea within this book is um, spacefaring races at the level of being able to build generational spacecraft evolve, but fairly infrequently. And the next step that they go on is to become so sufficiently advanced that they're able to put their consciousness into computers. And so these civilizations stop being biological and instead become supercomputer-based, bury their supercomputers, make their worlds appear barren. So if you go out amongst the stars, you find a lot of worlds that appear to be completely uninhabited, but actually have in geologically stable places vast civilizations essentially living on and on and on forever in this essentially cyber reality. Um, and that was just an interesting option C, that life forms would rather live forever in cyber form than colonize our entire galaxy. So Cylons. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so then Roy, to sort of follow on to that question, do you think we're living in a simulation right now? No. <laughs> and, and why? Um, could we tell yeah. the difference? No, I don't think we could. But I don't think that we are. Well, why not? Um, I'm more optimistic than that, I guess. Why? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very discomforting to think we're living in a, sim in a simulation, isn't it? OK. Well, absolutely. Also, uh, if we're living in a simulation, it's a really crappy one because we, <laughs> because we all die. Yeah. And if we're living in a simulation, couldn't we make it so that we, we get to live forever? Can't we live in this, this, this simulation where we can live underground? My, my fear is that we're somebody's game of Sim City, and while they're pretty good, they're not that imaginative. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's compelling, which is that if, if we were living in a simulation, it would be better. So, um, okay, great. Let's see. Am I running out? Okay, so Pamela, uh, what happened before the Big Bang? No. <laughs> Does any would anybody else like to answer this question? Yeah, <laughs> I'll give it a go. My this is so bordering on science fiction. So bear with that's me. that's fine. It makes it more awesome. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I'm going to mention it because every time I have an opportunity, I try to. I love what is sometimes referred to as the dripping universe theory, where our universe 
was born out of a supermassive black hole formation in another dimension. And the mass that's falling into that black hole is the dark energy that's expanding our universe. That's my favorite one. So the idea is that we don't, our, our whole dimension space-time reference doesn't exist until that supermassive black hole forms and starts to expand. It's just awesome. So, so I'm going to play Fraser because he wouldn't let me get away with that. What came before that supermassive black hole? Another universe with a supermassive black hole. <laughs> so, so you're telling me it's supermassive black holes all the way down. Yes. And, well, we like a concept that we call infinity, and I'm willing to pull the infinity card. <laughs> so, so along with post-turtles supporting the universe, we now have post-supermassive... Okay. Yeah, I'll, let's go with that. I'm all right with that. <laughs> So I've got, uh, I've got one more. I was going to give this one to Pamela, but... Uh, so, so, Pamela, why is there something and not nothing? Well, once upon a time, there was this little, tiny, extraordinarily dense bit of matter that decided it needed to expand out. And we had a big bang, and the something came out of that infinitesimally little, tiny, very dense something that became a bigger something. All right, we'll let you get by with that one for today. <laughs> uh, um, so uh, anyone on the panel now, um, uh, do you think wormholes are possible? Anyone on the panel, feel free to jump in. I'm not sure who's got an expertise in this. Are you asking stable or exist? Both. Do you think a stable wormhole is possible, and then do they exist? Definitely in my yard. <laughs> I, think, I think stable wormholes are possible, although I don't have a good reason to think that. I don't think traversable wormholes are possible. And there's a lot of good theory to, to demonstrate that, that, tra uh, yeah, that traversable wormholes are not possible. So, so from what I understand of the maths about wormholes, anytime matter enters them, they collapse, and we have this annoying cosmic microwave background, and energy is the same thing as mass. How would you get a, a wormhole to exist longer than the photon rate from the cosmic microwave background? Exotic matter. <laughs> that is a cheat. I'll let it pass. Exotic. <laughs> Tell me more about this exotic matter. Dark and dark. Dark red matter. Red matter. Energy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Good. Okay. So I've I've sort of hammered through my questions, and I wanted to give folks out there in the audience a chance. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I do have one sad bit of news. The, the last podcast that we recorded and put into our feed was recorded at Balticon with PG Holyfield as the co-host. And while we did this recording, we talked about doing a competition on short stories involving asteroid science. We wanted a collection of science fiction stories, and we'd be recording the best for use on Space Stories, part of 365 Days of Astronomy. And PG was doing this with me and was going to be writing a planetarium show with me on asteroids. Unfortunately, he passed away on August 20th. Um, because of that, we haven't posted the um, contest yet. We have taken submissions, and I'm going to extend the deadline for the submissions, and we're going to do this in honor of PG Holyfield. So any of you out there, all of the details are up on 365 Days of Astronomy. We will link to that in the show notes, and we're looking for submissions to help explain asteroid science through science fiction, and the best ones will have my voice reading them and turning them into audio dramas. All right, go ahead. Um, Y'all have already talked about black holes some and how everything basically that gets caught by them gets sucked down into a tiny infinitesimally dense, infinitesimally small speck of matter. Could one of these, could a speck of matter that size have, could a black hole basically have gotten full and the, and the forces that repel atoms and particles 
eventually overwhelm the gravitational force and that explosion caused the caused the big bang right so could a could a black hole create another big bang black hole people <laughs> isn't, isn't that what you just told us happened? <laughs> all the way down? Yeah, all the way down. I mean, that your your question, I guess, kind of, it, are you, you can just nod and I'll, I'll say in here, but are, do you mean like in this dimension that it would basically be a crunch and then a, and then another Big Bang? Yeah, that's a little bit different. So that would be like a black hole kind of slowly starting to eat everything up. But a common and understandable misconception of black holes is that they're not really vacuums. If our sun at its mass was a black hole, we'd be fine because the event horizon isn't there and it doesn't sort of suck stuff in. It does gain in mass and gain in size, but not in a super active vacuum-y sort of way. Did that, no, but I think, I, think okay? I know what she's getting at, so allow me to make this harder. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess the point is like in a black hole, you've got an enormous amount of mass and density under pressure, tons of mass compressed down, and that's very similar to the situation that was the singularity that started out the Big Bang of the universe. And so could you get a situation where so much material have, has gathered together that you've essentially got the same conditions for the Big Bang, and therefore is that maybe how the Big Bang happened? I think you could only do that if we lived in a closed universe. If the universe were going to eventually collapse back on itself, if we're not expanding and accelerating that expansion, but instead contracting, I think you, maybe you could end up with that condition again. And that was what a lot of people thought might be the case. If we lived in a, in a closed right. universe, then maybe we live in a cyclical universe. Right. Um, but I think that's the only way you could get that condition again. And since we don't live in that universe, I don't think you can have it. But isn't there one thing that's kind of missing from the recipe, which is space-time itself, right? That a black hole is... Um, now, here I am answering an awful question. What, what is, what's happened to me? Uh, that, that a black hole itself is, is inside space-time, while the Big Bang had space-time as part of, of it when it expanded. So the right? way that you described it is that that's kind of the foundation for that dripping universe theory, that basically it reaches a super critical point at a very high mass, and then it effectively tears through to another dimension. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's so, but that's that's the idea, is that it wouldn't kind of reflect or explode back out into our universe, given those dynamics, but something else would happen with that. So, so I think what our poor innocent uh, questioner was actually trying to get at also was we, we know that, that uh, you can only make atoms so large because it, eventually the forces that hold together nuclei uh, lose to the electromagnetic force and things start repelling each other back apart again. Um, but with black holes, is, is there anything that would cause them to eventually, like the largest atoms, uh, start falling back apart again? Overfeed a black hole. I don't think so. I don't think so. No. No, so you can never overfeed a black hole. And in fact, I mean, we've, we've probably all heard of Hawking radiation, right? This is a situation that black holes will evaporate over time. And the more you overfeed your black hole, the, the slower the Hawking radiation is going to happen, right? Yeah, and if what you're feeding the black hole is normal matter, there's a limit to how fast you can feed it as well before mm -hmm. the matter itself will push itself apart before it can get into the black hole. Did that answer the question? Yeah? <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> like you're hoping black hole, big bang. Yeah, no. Sorry. Reference to the question you asked earlier about the um, spaceship traveling close to the speed of light and then becoming a black hole. Uh, does the change in mass occur to the observer on the ship? And if so, and if not, how does that affect how you think about the question? And, and this is why I broke a theoretical physicist. <laughs> so, so in the perspective of the uh, moving, uh, the, the, the dude on the spacecraft, everything stays the same. He does not perceive all of the relativistic stretching, the change in momentum. All of that is, is, is not in his reality. And yet, to an outside observer, there is a change in momentum that is often discussed as a change in mass. And, and 
so the question then becomes, and the breaking of the theoretical physicist occurs, can that thing with this increased momentum essentially have all of the observable aspects of a black hole, even though the observer doesn't perceive any of that? Did that mean that the observer would be acting as a black hole until he slowed down? That, that is the, the question that eventually led to the answer of, there isn't enough mass in the universe to go that fast. <laughs> yeah, I think that was, that was the gist, is that it would, it would act like a black hole, but it wouldn't actually be a black hole. Thank you. Okay, so it was pretty much not the same question, but the same topic. Suppose you did turn into a black hole. I mean, does that mean you'd have a black hole flying through space at the speed of light? And would, well, nothing can move at the speed of light. Well, at or near the speed of light. Near the speed of light. I mean, would the turning into a black hole not slow it down? So, so the the issue becomes as something goes faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. Its momentum increases, and this is usually discussed as its mass increasing. And as it accelerates, its mass would eventually reach the point where, given how big or small the object is, but it's getting stretched as it grows, making the math harder. As it gets stretched as it grows, does it reach the point that in its short axis, this is where the math gets ugly, and I'm sorry, I'm now going in this and breaking all of you. So it's stretching along the direction that it's moving. It's not stretching along the other direction. And so the question is, on the other direction, are you close enough to the center of mass that you end up with an event horizon? And, and then it becomes a matter of, you have something with an event horizon, potentially, on one axis only because it's stretching in the other axis that is traveling at some really big ass speed through the universe. If it, was, if it had an event horizon on one axis, wouldn't that sort of possibly pull the other axis into it? No, that's where it gets all screwed up. And this is where the math, this is where the math defeated me soundly. And I went to someone who likes math and doesn't cry over it. Um, and, and as I said, he retired. We'd love anyone to pick up the mantle, just keep grinding on the math. So, so I have a question to the panel. Um, what happens, if, what about if we have the math wrong? We know, we know that relativity does not mesh with quantum mechanics. And, uh, you know, they predict different things. Uh, you know, and, you know, they, we know that they don't mesh. Yeah, I don't know. And so, yeah, what's, yeah, what's the answer to that? I, I don't, so, I, I don't know. Yeah, so I am not speaking on behalf of gravitational wave searches or the LIGO collaboration when I say this, but the idea is in the next, so LIGO are the ground-based Earth-based detectors that are trying to directly detect gravitational waves, which are the stretching of general relativity in space-time. And they are currently being upgraded and are on schedule to be online next year. That's public knowledge. And the upgrade that they've done has been done, and with our current understanding of astrophysics, they will be able to detect events at a rate of about one per year at the lowest limit starting in about 2018 or 2020. Come 2025, and they've not seen anything, that's currently the cutoff for saying maybe we've got it wrong. And that will force the rethink of general relativity because our current rates say in our understanding there's no reason why we shouldn't be detecting gravitational but, but waves. Gravitational waves have been seen detected indirectly with indirectly. Like, Absolutely. Yeah, with, every with rotating pulsars and things like that. Exactly. Every um, indirect detection of gravity every indirect detection that's been made shows that gravitational waves and general relativity exist. And there's no reason not to think so. The question is if we got it wrong that will start to become a more serious question once gravitational waves are not, if gravitational, if, waves, so if are not gravitational waves are not detected, then yeah. that becomes a, a pretty serious a, and important question. Very serious question, with, with for a good reason. 
with, with the caveat that I remember hearing someone make almost the exact same statement five years after I was supposed to graduate undergraduate and I graduated yeah. undergraduate in 96. This is this is why yes you're absolutely right and that is a <laughs> this is an issue that is happens with gravitational waves however that the LIGO detectors are on schedule to be at a sensitivity where the rate is so good. Previously, it was kind of like, mm, supernova really close, we'll detect them. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the caveats that I worry about are, are more related to, I, I would not be surprised if we discovered new geophysics, where we discovered uh, lower grade tectonics, uh, more planetary vibrations, and oh, we absolutely. have great geophysics coming out of LIGO and and that would not be cool but it would give relativity longer to live absolutely and this is why I'm saying I'm not saying 2025 no detections because who knows what's going to happen we could learn more about yeah so when Pamela was talking about geophysics the idea is these detectors are so sensitive they're detecting changes in four kilometers down to one one thousandth the size of an atom um, stretching like that and they pick up a lot of stuff. <laughs> but, a, and, but a space-based mission like Lisa would, yeah. you know, would put the constraints a lot tighter. Yeah, if anyone will fund it. If anyone will fund it. Can we all pitch in? Uh, okay, go ahead. All right, the universe is trying to kill you. What yes. is your favorite way or your constant fear of how the universe is trying to kill you? Oof. Gamma ray bursts, no question. Gamma, gamma ray bursts, no question. <laughs> Anyone else? How, how is the universe trying to kill you? I think near-Earth asteroids. Mm -hmm. I, I, mean, I just think we're, we're not spending any money looking for them, and we know there are thousands of Earth-crossing asteroids that are potentially hazardous. Uh, so I think that's how we're going to... LSST doesn't cost anything? <laughs> Yeah, it's. Yeah. It, it, but we're spending money on it. It has had the NASA and NSF um, funding, and they have broken ground and started the mirrors. So we're not currently working on it, and they have closed shop on several good missions. Not missions, several good ground based surveys. Right. It's but, LSST will be able to find some of these things. Its observing cadence is not designed for looking for near Earth asteroids necessarily, and it can only see part of the sky. Yeah, I mean, I think it's two questions, right? Is the universe trying to kill us, humanity? And really, it's us trying to kill us, humanity. Uh, you know, we're working on ways to do that with global warming, things like that. I mean, global warming is not a problem for life on Earth. Life on Earth is going to be just fine. Uh, but it's, you know, global warming is really, is really about us and about our being able to survive. Uh, so that, for me, that's the one that I think is going to be the, those kinds of major climate changes that we're going to make, I think, are what we'll probably do in our, our civilization. What's going to kill life itself? I, I'm, you know, the heating of the sun over the next 500 million to a billion years, I mean, I think is the, is the only thing that can take out life because life will find a way, as we've heard. Anyone else got a way that they... Uh... Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm more worried about what we're going to do to ourselves also. I think on the time scale of what you're talking about here with another asteroid collision or a gamma ray burst or the expansion of the sun and, and, and all that happening, the time scale is so large that if, if we continue to be a technological civilization, we're going to get off planet and we're going to go everywhere. And, and so I don't know that that would kill human, any of those would really wipe out humanity because I think we can do something about that if we're here to make that choice. And so I'm more worried about what you're talking about than I am the universe killing us. So, so I'm going to reflect on the fact that he said your favorite way, not the one that keeps you awake at night in honest terror. Friends don't let friends read climate change papers. <laughs> so, so my favorite way to destroy all life on the planet Earth is a rogue black hole that happens to have a solar system crossing orbit that slowly but surely tears things out of their orbits in a collisions of worlds kind of way and we get sucked into an orbit that is highly elliptical so that we alternate between freezing and frying in a way that kills everything. <laughs> yeah. All right, go ahead. So uh, what would it take to have a floating cloud sitting on Jupiter or Saturn? And as a follow-up, what would you experience if you fell off of it? Okay, so I think you've, you've, but before we go on, I think you've picked the wrong planet. 
Because Venus, in the cloud tops of Venus, you have Earth pressure and Earth temperature, and and uh, uh, a breathable air is a lifting gas. So you could literally make a floating city in the cloud tops of Venus, and you could walk outside, you know, with a little bit of sulfuric acid out there. Um, That's a detail. You know, with a, some kind of breather, um, and you know, wash off the sulfuric acid every now and then. Uh, but but tomorrow. So I think uh, I think that would be great. Now, if you fell off of either the one on Jupiter or Saturn or Venus, as we described, what would happen to you? Burn up. You would, so, so, so would you burn up? Uh, well, okay, if you're going fast enough, you would. You're not going fast enough, because you're, you're just floating. You're just enough. like right on the... Eventually, you would be crushed, because yeah, there's right. no surface to fall onto, and you keep falling, and eventually, you know, your bones will be crushed. I mean, you know, we've dropped probes into Jupiter's atmosphere, and we know that it's gotten crushed. Uh, I mean, personally, I, I think the way to have a cloud city is to have the right propulsion system to build the cloud city on, and you know, they you know, ever so minute puffs of air keeps it afloat. So, so I have to say that the way you get crushed is radically different across these three worlds. Saturn's kind of awesome because at the surface of its clouds, its density is such that at the surface of the clouds, you're the same weight that you are here on Earth. Now, as you fall, you're going to get crushed by the gas pressure. Jupiter, same thing, you're going to get crushed by the gas pressure. Venus is a mean planet. It's going to acid coat you, eat away at your skin, torture you, and then you smush into its surface at extremely high velocities. So you, you might die along the way, and if you don't, you hit the ground rather hard and then get crushed. Yeah, in a recent video, I suggested that we should just push Venus into the sun and be done with it. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, forgive my poor understanding, uh, but as I understand it, we are constantly being bathed in radiation of all sorts throughout the universe. Uh, what are the technical hurdles to being able to collect that energy out in space for a spaceship and to be able to power it, to convert it into usable energy? Mm. Sounds like a less question. Or is it just a math problem where there's just not enough energy to do that? Well, it depends on the scale, I think, part of it. I mean, right now we have spacecraft that use solar panels to collect sunlight to that energy, and you can turn that to power your spacecraft, or you can use that for propulsion by solar electric propulsion or something. You can use sunlight indirectly for moving around with a solar sail where you reflect sunlight, and the momentum of the reflected light causes it to move. You can use planetary magnetospheres uh, and, like Earth and Jupiter to generate electricity with these long cables, these long tethers, uh, so you can generate power and get propulsion from that. Um, so it's all a matter of scale. All of the things I've talked about here tend to, to take this diffuse energy, which is not very concentrated, and you have to have large structures to collect it, to, to reflect it, to, to use it. Now, on scales larger than that, the energy is very, very diffuse. You know, in, this, in the outer solar system where the sunlight gets dim, the stellar magnetic field. I mean, all that probably in principle you could try to harvest, but you'd be on a very large scale to try to do that. Yeah, one of the problems is people don't really appreciate how low density that background radiation really is. I, when I was in graduate school, I did all of my imaging at McDonald Observatory, which has the misfortune of it basically carved into the granite to put the 30-inch telescope I used for my research onto the mountain in a nice flat surface they created, which meant I was contending with the radiation coming up from the granite as well as the radiation coming down from space. The radiation from the granite was actually slightly higher flux. Um, they didn't let pregnant women observe on this telescope, which always dis disturbed me slightly. Um, but I could take a 600-second exposure, five, a 10-minute exposure, and with the one-inch square chip, I'd get a countable number of cosmic rays hitting the one-inch chip over 10 minutes. So that's not a whole lot of particles hitting my chip. And I was sitting on top of granite that was influencing this. Now, you're out in outer space, you don't have that granite helping you out. 
As you move further away from the sun, the number of, of high energy particles you're getting from the sun decreases. Other high energy particles, while you're waiting for supernova to go off or waiting for cosmic rays from more distant supernova to go off, there's just not enough. And some of these suckers just don't like to be captured. The way solar sails work, which Les can talk about far more than I can, is, is they're capturing a lot of the optical light, the photons coming off of the sun, and those impart a push. Well, a gamma ray is just going to punch right through your solar sail quite happily and come out the other side most of the time. So if your x-rays and gamma rays are passing through, your infrared doesn't have that much energy, and there's not a lot of cosmic rays with mass, you're just going to kind of sit there going, huh, I need a breeze. But still, you should appreciate your magnetic field. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, no, we got time. We've got time for two, two more questions. You yeah, uh, I have a quick one. Uh, do we know yet why there is not more antimatter in the universe. I think I've heard people say there was an initial imbalance between matter and antimatter, which, you know, kind of seems like you're assuming something, you know, just that's convenient with that matches what you observe. So why aren't there more antimatter galaxies and antimatter stars and things like that? <laughs> We're looking well, I know why is everybody looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think we know the answer to that. I don't, does anybody think we know the answer to that? I don't think we do. Uh, but uh, if you believe in, in multiverse theory, one possibility is that the antimatter is in another universe. And so there's, there are antimatter galaxies and antimatter stars and all that stuff in another universe to balance all the... So they're just asking the exact opposite question over there. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. It's... yeah, go ahead. All right. Hey, uh, thank you. So uh, you asked a question earlier. Uh, I don't remember your name. Less. You asked less. What if uh, we could travel faster than the speed of light, or maybe you said at the speed of light? Faster. Faster. Okay. So uh, I was really surprised when you asked that question because <laughs> I was thinking, well, if if something like that happened, if if we actually could travel faster than the light, how, to what extent would that destroy our understanding of physics? Like, how much of a crisis in physics would that be? <laughs> how would we cope? So, so traveling through space at faster than the speed of light, where you're moving in a continuous, I'm here, now I'm in the next place, now I'm in the next place. Uh, if you have mass, there's no way we know of to do that. People theorize about tachyons, which have no mass and can somehow pull this off because they have no mass. Now, we do know that there are things with mass that appear to jump from one place to another through a theory called quantum tunneling. And when I use theory, I mean this is one of the things that is most proven that we have in science. Um, so when we start talking about getting something from A to B at faster than the speed of light, we're looking at things that might not look too different, except for the whole event horizon, um, from the gates that they had in Buck Rogers, from Stargate, from Tesserats, all of that sort of jumping through space rather than traveling through space. That doesn't break the laws except for the fact we don't know how to tunnel anything that big because the waveform reality of a human being, our ability to act like a wave, is smaller than our body is. And if our waveform is smaller than our body, how do we defract? But we actually did a lot on one question show early on, so I'm going to say, go hunting for where I babbled semi-consistently about this early on. All right, so we're out of time. You got, you got a question, right? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we're out of time. It's my track. Yeah, it's your track. No, please. We, we are at your disposal. Okay. Um, there are... I, but how do I phrase this the best? There are, you have gravity, you have electromag, uh, electromagnetic, my, my mouth isn't working very well. You have the strong and the weak nuclear force. Um, all of those have their purposes and their strengths and their weaknesses and how they're used. But gravity, I've always heard, is disproportionate to what it should be. Why? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you got it? That's a great question. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so dis disproportionate. You mean that it's sort of weaker, in, to some extent, than all the. It, it, it appears to be much weaker. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's okay. I'll repeat it. Much yeah. weaker than it should be when you consider all of the different forces that are out there. Yes. Okay. So. Um. Oh. <laughs> Just because my thesis has gravity in the title, <laughs> this is now my curse. Um, you're our gravity specialist. Yes, apparently so. Um, I mean, we know so little about gravity. This is an interesting thing in terms of like having particles that are associated with, because all the forces have associated particles. And gravity, there's a theory, theoretical one called the graviton. Um, I mean, when you look at the large scale of the universe, gravity is the kind of, I mean, I like to think of it as the overwhelming force because that's why everything is shaped the way it is. Um, now, what's there has to do with the other forces. I can't tell you why gravity is as weak as it is. Um, I wish I could. I think that's something a lot of people wish they could say. Uh, but I do think we shouldn't discount it as an interesting force um, to study. And, and I don't yes. mean to discount it in any way. Okay. That, that is my whole, that is my whole question. Gravity affects absolutely everything in our universe. Mm -hmm. And yet it is considered the weakest of the forces. Yeah. So why is that? You know, I, there have been, there have been the theories that maybe most of gravity is in an alternate universe. It, okay. it maybe it's, it's in a, in a brain or, 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 or whatever. So I guess yeah. I'm, what I'm really looking for are theories. What are y'all's theories about Exciting, it? fun things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the gravities in another universe. That's fun. Um, and like I said, I think especially when you look at the fine structure of the universe, that's, an amazing concept in terms of how gravity affects everything. So I don't tend to see gravity as weak. I tend to just look at it as a different scale. Um, that's that's how I rationalize it in my brain. If the further out you fly, the bigger you see its effects. So I think of it as a pretty strong force, and that was such a weak answer. But it's like 11 o'clock on Sunday at Dragon Con, so I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'll email you an answer. Yeah, so, so to, to take us momentarily where Fraser likes to take us into the land that might be slightly fantasy-driven. Um, there are lots of papers, uh, none of them accepted as this is the truth. Uh, that, that do put forward that gravity is perhaps rolled up into how we roll up all the other dimensions of our universe. We live in this XYZ time for dimensional space. But we know there have to be additional dimensions for all the physics we use to actually work. And maybe gravity's tied up in how we don't experience all those other dimensions. Now, my favorite not accepted by anyone that I know of theory that I ran across was, well, Einstein said that, that gravity is the geometry of space. And, and so there, there was one lone paper I found and have found none others along these lines that contended that you have the electromagnetic, the strong and the weak forces that are a family of forces, and then the mass of objects via whatever, Higgs boson, who knows, as I said, I haven't found more papers on this idea, are able to warp space-time so that gravity is the effect of this warping through other dimensions rather than an actual force that has a graviton that is undetectable. All right, so at that, I think we're, we're out of time. I know it's uh, past 11 now, so I, I want to thank the entire panel for what is really cruel and, and unusual punishment and, and literally seven years of pent-up questions of while we've been doing astronomy <laughs> cast. And so when Rain suggested the idea, now I had free reign, as it were. <laughs> and, uh, and she provided a whole team of willing victims. So I thank you, all of you, for, for being good sports and answering these questions. I know they were awful and tough, and, uh, and, but I think it's, it's great. Because what's great is, is how we tackle these questions, that we don't just kind of go, oh, we don't know, that we've got ideas, things intrigue us. It pushes this quest for knowledge out there, and I think it's really great. So, and, and this is our eight-year anniversary.
I know. So, yeah, Astronomy Cast started um, at DragonCon eight years ago. Yeah. It was when we decided. We at DragonCon. No, but it we. was DragonCon weekend. Yeah, that we decided to do Dragon to do Astronomy Cast. We'd yeah. say, yeah. 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 So, there you go. Um, so, so, thanks everyone for listening. Here's to many more years. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at infoastronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. 